Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with housing rights attorney Satish Nori. Satish went from pursuing human rights law as a career to working in housing court in Brooklyn. He spent more than 20 years as a legal services attorney at the Legal Aid Society of New York City, including most recently as attorney in charge of the Queens Neighborhood Office, and before that, the Bedford-Stuyvesant Community Legal Services. In those two decades, Satish became a manager. He started teaching as a clinical adjunct at NYU. He wrote a book, and he even ran for judge. Maybe we'll talk about that as well. Born in India, Satish was the first South Asian attorney to direct a borough-wide office of a legal services organization in New York City. This past spring, he took a step back from his front lines representation in housing court to join Just Fix, a tech company focused on providing access to justice in the housing space. He's a graduate of NYU Law School, Go Violets, and Johns Hopkins University, Go Blue Jays. Welcome to the podcast, Satish. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Jonah. It's a real pleasure to be here. Good. Well, look, I like to start these interviews with sort of that foundational question of how you found the law and maybe how you found your area of practice. So was there a moment that you decided, I'm going to be a housing rights attorney? There was never a moment where I decided this is my path. I kind of stumbled upon it. As a child, I always thought I'd be a lawyer based on what I saw on TV or read I read about in books. And looking back on it now, it seems like mainly it was for the vanity to be able to wear a suit and to be able to stand up in court and to be able to gesticulate and argue and negotiate and cajole witnesses and have those big aha moments in a big trial. But I really didn't know what being a lawyer would be like. And as I grew older, I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor like my parents are. And my sister subsequently became a doctor as well. And uh, I realized that, you know, there is something more noble about the law, which is the ability to speak on behalf of people who don't have a voice and to really just simply help people. And so I went to law school. And I thought I would be a human rights lawyer. But again, I had no idea what that meant. I imagined maybe again, because of my own vanity, that there'd be like fancy parties in Geneva with cocktails and appetizers. And I'd be dressed in a tuxedo like James Bond, but with a law degree. And that's what that life would be like. And I would write reports and document human rights abuses. But I realized that that's not really what human rights law is. It's much more about doing research and kind of working hard to produce reports that may never be read by anyone. And if you're lucky, you end up at a reputable human rights organization. If you're less lucky, you'd be traveling for most of your career, going from place to place, following issue to issue. And also, it's very hard to get a job, even with those kinds of conditions. 
So after law school, I thought I'd become a public school teacher. And I even interviewed for a job in a public school in East Harlem. And there came a time where I signed up for the New York City Teaching Fellows Program, which is somewhat like Teach for America, but it's limited to just New York City. And I interviewed for a job. I went through this test teaching program where you have five minutes to teach a lesson. And cleverly, I thought, well, what could I teach in five minutes? I'll teach people how to write haikus. <laughs> and so I waited in this room. With a law degree. With my great, law degree. Yeah, exactly. Great choice. Great my choice. Parents, my parents were thrilled that <laughs> I was going to go do this. So I waited in this room with all these other candidates who were getting ready to teach their mock lessons. And as I listened, I realized that three out of the previous 10 people had taught haiku. <laughs> like it wasn't going to be my unique, brilliant idea. And so I did my best. I wasn't even like the third best at teaching in that room on that subject. But I still thought I would pursue it because I wanted to have a direct impact. And I wanted to work with people who uh, were vulnerable. And I thought kids in public schools and low-income communities were among the most vulnerable. And I could really have an impact. But there came a point where I had to choose whether to study for the teacher certification exam or take the bar exam. And uh, I realized that if I didn't take the bar exam at that point, I would probably never take it. And law school would have been a waste in some ways because I'd never be licensed to practice law. So I abandoned the dream of becoming a public school teacher. And I studied. I signed up for Barbary. And I studied and I took the bar exam. And then that fall, this is the fall after graduating from law school, which coincidentally was in 2001. So it was a time in which the entire world had changed because of 9-11. And as it happens, I lived right near where the Twin Towers stood. And I was there on 9-11, unemployed waiting for my bar exam results, interviewing for jobs. And, uh, you know, I stood on my corner on Nassau Street in lower Manhattan and saw the towers after the planes had struck them, thinking like, okay, they'll patch it up and, you know, it'll be a minor, you know, minor issue, relatively speaking. Minutes later, and I was running for my life amidst all the debris and the smoke and people screaming and so on. So it was in this context that, you know, I was looking for work and trying to figure out what it would be that I would do in the middle of this crater that I was living in, which was ground zero. Um, and I still live there after 9-11. I lived there for a couple more months and could smell the, you know, burning debris every single day. So I applied for a job as, you know, for an opening for a housing attorney in the Brooklyn office of the Legal Aid Society. And at the time, I didn't know what the Legal Aid Society was. I didn't know what being a housing attorney was. I didn't even know that I, at that point, was living in a rent-stabilized apartment, which is so fundamental to being a housing attorney, like to understand that there's a thing called rent regulation and it protects people from arbitrary rent increases and so on. So I knew so little, but I went into the interview 
and I talked about my desire to do human rights work and my my experience on the debate team in eighth grade and how that prepared me for going into housing court in Brooklyn. And for whatever reason, I passed the interview process and I was made a job offer and I started. Yeah. That's such a great story because I think it really captures what I feel like a lot of recent law graduates go through in some way, shape or form this sort of feeling like, oh, I finished my education. Now I have to figure out what I want to do with my life because the answer lawyer isn't going to cut it anymore. It's, well, what kind of lawyer are you going to be? And your story has all of the various twists and turns, right? There's the turn of maybe I'm not going to be a lawyer at all. There's the turn of I thought I wanted to be X, but I actually don't know what X does. And when I found out what X does, maybe that doesn't fit my interest or my skill set. And then ultimately, right, putting yourself out there, interviewing, and maybe setting yourself up with the job that picks you is the best opportunity. So I think that's such a great sort of path. Have you ever thought back on that moment and said to yourself, like, what would have happened if I didn't take that interview or I didn't get that job? Absolutely. I mean, if I didn't get that job, I would have been back on the job market probably rethinking whether I wanted to be a school teacher and whether I wanted to take the teacher certification exam. I probably would have also thought about leaving New York City, where I'm from and where, you know, my family lives in the suburbs and it's where I grew up. But I might have thought about like leaving and, and trying something altogether different. I might have even left the country to just actually try to be a human rights lawyer and move to a place where actual human rights abuses need to be documented. And then, you know, my path from there would have been totally different. I would never have done that. This thing that I've done for 20 years until recently, it's a lesson that um, law schools really don't prepare you once they kind of push you out the doors after graduation. No one tells you what it's really like, you know, and I love that you have this podcast and I hope law students listen to it. I'm sure they do. Because no one tells you what it's really like. And you kind of get locked in to a path. And before you know it, you know, time goes by really quickly and you're stuck. And, and it's really hard to make a change. It's really hard to pivot. And it's really scary, too, because you don't want to start all over again, learn something new, move to a new place. Maybe you have a family and you don't want to uproot them. And so it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, I mean, on the one hand, right, it was a circuitous path to this job. On the other hand, I talked to a lot of lawyers and very rarely do I find lawyers who have done the same thing at largely the same sort of organization or set of organizations for 20 years, which is what you sort of had done uh, working as a housing attorney. And so I guess my question then is the one that maybe you would have loved to have heard 23 years ago, which is, what does a housing attorney do? It's a great question. And the simplest way to describe what a housing attorney does is we fight to prevent evictions. So fundamentally, the issue that we work on is the issue that housing is not a human right. So housing, instead of being a human right, is actually a commodity. It's bought and sold and traded for profit, just like soybeans or steel or oil. The problem is people actually live in these apartments and they're disregarded. 
as just part of the transaction. And so what housing attorneys do is they work with whatever laws exist in their jurisdictions. And fortunately, in New York City, we have strong tenant protection laws. But we also have one of the most powerful real estate lobbies and industries anywhere. And what I like to tell people is that real estate in New York is so powerful and so wealthy that a mediocre nobody who is a real estate person from Queens became the president of the United States. That's what we're up against. So despite the laws being really strong, we're up against, you know, just billions and billions of dollars and tax revenues for the city. And really, one of the pillars of New York City is real estate, you know, Wall Street being another one, maybe insurance, a third one. But it's what we're up against. So every day, we represent tenants who are facing eviction for various reasons. And the biggest reason people face eviction is for non-payment of rent. Rents keep going up, incomes don't go up, and sometimes during pandemics, they go down. People lose their jobs, businesses dry up, restaurants close, you know, and so on. And so it's a constant problem for the vast majority of people who live in New York City and, and everywhere in the United States is that people pay more than 30% of their monthly income, sometimes more than 50% of their monthly income towards their rent. And it never stops. It's relentless. So if you have an illness, if you have a death in the family, if your job circumstances change, if you have another child, if someone moves in with you, you're going to fall behind in your rent. And so what I saw as a housing attorney is this kind of never-ending Sisyphean ordeal of representing people over and over again because they fell behind in rent for no reason of their own making, just the circumstances of their lives. It's just they're set up to fail like a house of cards. And we would go into court and the challenge was to use procedural defenses like personal jurisdiction, you know, all those things you learn in civil procedure and you think, what's the point of this? I don't care. It's really boring. Well, that's all we've got in many of our cases is we have civil procedure, the rules, and we use the rules very carefully and strategically to get our clients more time to get these cases delayed, to get them dismissed, but they can come back. You know, the landlord will file another case. And so the trick is to leverage that time, that expense, that delay into something of value for our clients. So maybe a waiver of money owed, or maybe additional time to move out or something. And so for 20 years, you know, I fought for tenants in all the boroughs of New York City at various points. I represented tenant associations, so groups of tenants who were fighting against their landlords. We had a case in East Harlem in which a landlord failed to repair the single elevator in a six-unit building full of families and elderly people. And we had, I recall, something like 68 court appearances before the judge finally ordered that the building be taken away from the landlord temporarily so that a city administrator could repair the elevator. And so that's what we're up against is a, you know, even in a, in a city in which there are strong tenant protections, we're dealing with legal process, which is slow. 
And we're dealing with a judicial process in which people who have lawyers dominate the process. And fortunately, um, New York City adopted a right to counsel for tenants in recent years. And so now every tenant basically who can't afford a lawyer, you know, under 200% of poverty will get a free lawyer. And so I assume that's very uncommon sort of nationwide that there's a right to counsel in, in this kind of proceeding. That's right. There are probably a half a dozen places across the country where something like this exists and nothing on the scale of New York City. So for any law students who are listening and who are interested in doing defense work or human rights work with a litigation component, um, I would recommend that you apply for one of these jobs because um, you're doing something positive. So how did I, you know, why did I stay in this job for 20 years? You know, it's probably an obvious question. And one of the things is that it doesn't feel like 20 years has passed. It feels very recent. It feels like I started yesterday. And one of the reasons for that is the ability to work with real people. Like every person who came in the door and sought my help felt like a compelling story of which I could be a part and, you know, kind of like a choose your own adventure and you get to like choose the right path and help guide somebody and their family to some kind of resolution. And every single story, like every case, I must have represented a thousand families in, in the 20 years. I remember every single one of them, like, you know, they're a family member and it was really meaningful to be able to uh, do that work. However, you know, the other side of it is appealing back to my vanity and, and some of those instincts from when I was younger. And I thought this is what being a lawyer is like. There is this really exciting element of being a litigator where, you know, you are like a gladiator in an arena. You go in, you arm yourself with your weapons, which are like, you know, laws and procedures, and you go and fight against a bad guy. And it's really challenging. It's stressful. It's, it's uh, invigorating. It's exciting. It's kind of like Game of Thrones or something, you know, <laughs> except for like... <laughs> Game of Thrones, housing court edition. I guess the follow-up that I have to that is, I think I've, I've heard that housing court is kind of a different, different beast to, to continue the, the metaphor a little further. And, you know, a lot of people who become litigators or at least litigators for businesses or private clients rarely are going to see the inside of a courtroom. It might take you years before you actually see a judge because everything's done on the paper. My understanding is that housing court functions a little bit differently. And I'd just be curious about sort of what housing court is like for those of us that haven't seen it. Yeah, that's a great question. So housing court in New York City and in many places is part of a summary proceeding process, which means things are on a rapid timeline. So a housing court case can take six weeks from start to finish. That's pretty quick. You have five days or now um, 12 days to answer a petition. Your court date will be within weeks of the filing. A trial could happen that day or two or three weeks after that. There's no discovery of right. So you go in blind unless you make a motion and you tell the judge there's a compelling reason for discovery. So there aren't any depositions. There's no witness lists. And the judges sometimes don't understand the rules of evidence. We had a case, a virtual trial, and the judge inadvertently shared 
his screen and we could all see that he had Googled what the best evidence rule is. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. And it was really surprising and sad. But at the same time, you know, it tells you these are high volume courts and everybody's kind of operating on the fly. And what does that mean for tenants? But how did you do that as a tenant's lawyer? I mean, were you going in and sort of just reading the file and standing up and, you know, using one of the tools in your arsenal? Were you, did you have any time to sit in your office and write? Like, what were your days like? The days were really, really challenging. So we would show up to court. There'd be an intake office, which would be like, think of like a hospital emergency waiting room. And instead of people having stab wounds and gunshot wounds and stomach bugs, people would have legal papers. And sometimes the papers would say, I'm going to be evicted tomorrow. Or sometimes they'd say, I was, you were just evicted. Like, here's an inventory of your apartment. All of your stuff has been removed in garbage bags and sent to a storage facility. And so we would have to triage those cases and sometimes run right into court or type up something really quickly and prioritize efficiency and results over quality, like finding that balance of quality, effectiveness, and efficiency is a real skill. And it's one of the things that I loved about being a tenant's lawyer is nothing was extraneous. This was like only what's necessary. And it did feel like being in a hospital emergency room. It's like you have no time to really think too deeply about it. You just have to act. You have to take your best guess. And over time, your best guess just gets better and better. And you kind of play those odds and say, this is what I think is going to happen here. This is going to be the outcome if I do X. This is going to be the outcome if I do Y. And then you have to balance all the other cases that are going to come through or the ones you already have on your, on your docket. And so it's extremely intense, but also at the end of the day, you're done and you don't have to really take much home with you. Like whatever you did, win or lose, it's over. Sometimes that day, sometimes maybe a week or two later, and you can move on. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, everything's in the moment. And I, I sort of feel like law at some point was more like that in other areas. Maybe that's, again, sort of my watching too much TV and my vanity, but at the end of the day, that does sound fairly unique in sort of the contemporary practice of law of this sort of in-person, often by the seat of your pants, lots of secrets, standing up in court, sort of knowing the cases. I mean, I assume after whatever, hundreds or even thousands of cases, you sort of see patterns and it's like you can use that experience to sort of figure out, well, I've seen this, something like this before, and I have a good idea of how to to get my client something. I guess my other question then is like, how do you learn to do this? Or I guess you were a manager for a long time. Like, how do you train people to do this? Because I don't think we're training people in law school to do this. I started a clinic at NYU in order to be able to train people to take these jobs that are coming out for the right to counsel in New York City. And for some people, it's very stressful. There's a lot of anxiety. You could see people get really sweaty, start to uh, stutter. People completely lose their cool when put on the spot. But I also saw people like law students who had never done this before really just shine and come out of their shell. People who were really shy suddenly become very articulate and expressive and aggressive and compelling. 
And it's a really beautiful thing to see. The other thing that's really fascinating is the adversaries are just the same old usual suspects, like this ragtag group of 20 or 30 lawyers in every courthouse who represent landlords. They have an office across the street in a basement underneath a Dunkin' Donuts or something. And they show up and they are hustlers. It was too easy at times to say we're better than them. We're on the right side morally. But over time, I realized, you know, it's hard to be a hustler, to compete for clients, to have to cover five different courthouses in one day, to have to pay for parking and and hire paralegals and make your rent for your office and chase your own clients for unpaid legal bills. Um, But you would kind of figure them out, too. And so, for example, you know, there is a particular lawyer who probably had the worst toupee in the history of toupees, and he would show up to court every day and would be very aggressive from about 10 to about noon and would be very difficult to deal with. But around 12.30 and courts closed for lunch at 1, everyone knew that this guy would get really hungry (laughs) and get really impatient and would basically agree to any deal that you offered him at that time. And there's no way a new lawyer would know that, you know, but over time, you'd say, all right, just wait it out. Just hide in the bathroom for two hours. And around 12, 15, 1230, just go hunt them down and say, here, sign this. And uh, you'd get your deal. And so there is this kind of fascinating human dynamic about working in a courthouse, which is like this. Like I said, it's like an arena with the same gladiators, like recycled every day. And uh, you would know exactly how to deal with them. And, and there's, there's some fun in that too. It's a, it's an interesting challenge to fit into that. Yeah. I, it reminds me of the, of the oft quoted saying, right? If the facts are on your side, hammer the facts. If the law is on your side, hammer the law. If neither on your side, hammer the table. Maybe the addendum is hammer the opposing counsel who, you know, gets hungry at 1230. That's part of it. And I guess, you know, you've seen, you've seen people start in this world. You've trained students in this world besides trying it. What are some of the things that someone could look in the mirror and say, either this is what I like to do, or this is what I'm naturally good at, or this is what I'm not good at that might lead them to say housing lawyer might work for me. Yeah. I mean, there's this thing that I love, which is that being a litigator is like showbiz for people who have no other talents. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And uh, and I think that the saying also goes for politics too. Uh, but, but, you know, you can like kind of like say, you know, do you have that kind of inner need to perform? And some of this is performance, but then more essentially it's, you know, do you have that desire to to help somebody, to speak out for somebody? Are you the type of person who might see a bully picking on someone and you would intervene, you know, and that's, that's the kind of compulsion that some of the lawyers I work with have, like they have a need to jump in and say, I need to do something about this. This is just wrong. And I think the law can be a real superpower in that way. Like you can study this set of rules, this language, and it's not that complicated. One of the other things that an old time housing lawyer told me is that there's intellectual property, and then there's what we do, which is unintellectual property. 
<laughs> I like and I that. thought to myself, like yeah, that. this stuff isn't that complicated. You know, it's kind of the same stuff that you see over and over again, but you need to have the fortitude to go and show up and stand there and take some of this abuse from some of these kind of nasty types sometimes, the judges, the adversaries, the court officers, you know, it's a very awful place. It's like spending your day at the DMV, except, you know, you have to go every day. <laughs> And you have to explain to someone what it takes to get their driver's license. Uh, it's just very, very painful sometimes. But um, you need to have those qualities. How did you do that for 20 years? How did you go in and say, either the law is against me consistently, there may be a few places where it's for me, and my job is to see the same fact pattern or some version of it play out over and over and over again. I think for some people that might be really challenging to sort of say like parts of this system are broken, but I can't fix the system. What kept you going every day to the DMV? Yeah, I, it, it, that's another great question. I mean, there is this sense that, you know, not only is the system broken, but sometimes you feel like you're part of the system, like you're facilitating this perpetual system of evictions. Like, why do we even show up there? We should be dismantling the building from the outside brick by brick. And so there is a lot of that within my field, which is like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just delaying and part of this system of oppression that targets the most vulnerable people in our society. But the other side of it is like, if you don't do it, it's kind of like that Holden Caulfield metaphor of like, just catching all of the lost people. and we are literally at the edge of a cliff. And if we're not standing there, people are falling off the cliff in droves. And there is this kind of a moral need for people to stand there and do it. But the other thing I would say is like, I've never felt that two cases were the same or that I saw the same thing over and over again. Every case felt like a new challenge. There was this one case that I had in which a mother and her 17-year-old daughter we're facing eviction from like a $350 apartment in Brooklyn, um, which was rent stabilized. But one of the exceptions to the law was that if the landlord wanted to move into that apartment, he could evict that family. And so the landlord made this case that he wanted to move in and put his parents in that apartment. But in reality, the landlord wanted to use their apartment to make more money because once they were evicted, then the landlord could charge almost anything he wanted that the market would bear. And it certainly wouldn't be $350. It'd probably be $3,000 a month. And so we had this long trial and my client was a Mexican woman who didn't speak, who spoke Spanish as her first language and her daughter would help translate when we had meetings about the case. Ultimately, we lost after like a week long trial because the judge said the law is what it is and the landlord has the right to recover an apartment if they show a good faith intention to take the apartment back for their family members. So my client had to move and I had to explain to my clients that they'd lost their home of 20 years. My client's daughter had lupus and it was a you know chronic illness, had just gotten into college and was about to go off and was just sad that she would have to leave her mother without a place to live. She'd have to find a new place to live. And I was heartbroken, but one day I received a letter in my office, handwritten by my client's daughter. And she said, 
I want to thank you for fighting for us. No one's ever listened to us before. You gave us a chance. And because of you, you know, I want to go to law school one day and do the kind of thing that you did for me and my family. And then, you know, the story gets even better. Six months after that, my client calls me and tells me that, you know, she'd worked as a housekeeper for a wealthy family in Long Island. And the last remaining family member, the matriarch, passed away and left my client $100,000 in her will, with which my client was able to purchase a co-op apartment. So everything worked out in this like incredible way. But the lesson to me was, it's not about winning or losing, which, you know, if you define success in that manner, it can be very demoralizing, but it's about allowing someone to have dignity, to feel that human dignity, to feel that someone connected with them, listened to them. And um, that's really what mattered. And so I kept that lesson and it kept me going case after case. The other thing that kept me going is to be able to mentor people and to supervise new attorneys and to guide people through this, this path and to show them some of the highlights that I experienced too in this, in this career. And, and there's nothing more rewarding. I mean, you're a law professor and I'm sure you feel that too when you get to kind of open the doors to this world, this field, you know, a particular subject to people who are really curious and motivated to learn. You know, it's really rewarding to do that. Absolutely. And I guess my last question on this before we turn to sort of what you're doing now is how do people get these jobs? I mean, one of the challenges that I've seen, and I don't think it's any secret that my day job, I, you know, I teach at Georgetown Law and a lot of Georgetown Law students sort of enter the private practice big law track. And my students who are not trying to do that find it a lot harder to sort of navigate the world of becoming a public interest lawyer. And I guess I'd be curious, you know, if you have any even just quick tips or thoughts or mental models that can help those more public interest-minded students find public interest jobs specifically in your area? One of the most difficult things that you can do out of law school is to find a public interest job. And I wish there were better ways, for example, like a Peace Corps for lawyers who wanted to do public interest work or more loan forgiveness. But what I would say to, to students in this position is, to really essentialize the elements of, of what you want in your career. People have limitations like, I wanna do family law only, or I only wanna do asylum work, or I only wanna work in Washington DC and nowhere else. And I think that's dangerous because you may not get that. You know, you're, you're just kind of limiting the odds of you landing somewhere. Instead, think, I wanna work with clients, or I wanna do policy work, I wanna do higher level work. Or you might say, I want to go into court. Like I want to go and help the most vulnerable people, knowing that their stories are the most difficult to digest and to carry with you. Or you might say, you know, I want to work and use my language skills. If you essentialize it in a broader way like that, I think like I did, you might end up in a place that you never thought you'd be and, you know, have a long career doing that. And that's a better way to, to end up there. But it's hard. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's so, so important. And that's true for everyone. But I think I, I haven't heard it said exactly this way for exactly this audience. But you know, one of the things that I often talk about with guests and with my students is don't decide what kind of lawyer you want to be based on a practice area. Instead, 
ask yourself, what kind of lawyer do I want to be? Meaning, what do I want to do every day? Or what is the goal that I can't wake up unless I'm serving that goal? And some people have called this like the personal monopoly, like find the things that only you can do that sit at the center of that Venn diagram. And there actually may be a couple of different paths. And that increases your denominator of opportunity because increasing the numerator ain't up to you. (laughs) Exactly right. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, I think that's great advice. But look, I want to hear a little bit about sort of your your most recent pivot. I mean, you spent a lot of time on the front lines, and my understanding is you sort of moved into the legal tech space, but connected to what you were doing. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing, and I know you've only been doing it for a little while, but how's the experience been, and how is it either the same or different from what you were doing before? So I'm now the executive director of a nonprofit tech company called Just Fix. And what we do is we try to bring technology to the issue of housing justice. So housing justice is, you know, one of the most common issues is eviction prevention. But another one is housing conditions, like how are people living? And when housing is a commodity and people can profit off it, well, they're going to extract as much profit as they possibly can. And that means landlords are going to cut corners on heat, on mold on hot water, on exterminations. And during a pandemic, when people are stuck at home or they're forced to double up, those issues really matter. And people who lived in substandard housing were more likely to get COVID, were more likely to die from COVID. This became a really serious public health issue. So what I was really curious about is how do you leverage technology? It's one thing to be a frontline attorney and to you know, represent individuals who or families who are facing this crisis. But is there a way to go further upstream and say, like, how do we arm people before they get into court? And the other part of it is other ways to address these issues outside of the law. And more and more, what I realized is the law is just one tool. And it's kind of owned by these gatekeepers called lawyers like us. And one of our supporters is a professor uh, named Rebecca Sandifer. And one of the things that she, she won a MacArthur Fellowship and what she wrote about, and she profiled Just Fix, she said, for most people, they know they have a problem. They don't see it as a legal problem. And that gap is what precludes a lot of people from getting legal assistance. Like you don't necessarily know you have to go to the courthouse and seek a lawyer because you don't have heat. You just know that something isn't working. And so if we can provide more tools for people, and the law is one of those tools, but it's not the only one. And that's that's the risk is like only lawyers can solve problems. Like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a lawyer, everything looks like a legal problem. And so I wanted to think more broadly than that and think like, what are other ways to help people who just want to lead normal lives? They want to have a Saturday with their family safely in their apartment. They don't want to necessarily spend nine months in housing court fighting against a landlord who's got more resources than they'll ever have. And so what Just Fix does is we provide various tools. One is data. So how do you understand what the housing market looks like? Who is your landlord? 
there is this kind of uh, misconception that landlords are just mom and pops, you know, a little old lady who inherited a building, just trying to make ends meet. Don't be a bad tenant. Don't complain. Don't make it harder for that landlord. They're just part of the community and so on. But what we found at Just Fix is that most landlords are corporations, and that's true everywhere. And to corporations, a tenant is just a line item on a spreadsheet. And so we've got to make that clear. Like This has to be common knowledge. People need to understand the business that they're in because it's more important for them. It's their home. It's just profit. It's just the next enterprise for a business person or a corporation. And then the other thing that we wanted to do is to use tools that people already have, like a cell phone, you know, a phone with a camera on it can be a powerful weapon if you're fighting for repairs in your apartment. You can take a picture of a leak and through Just Fix, we will send a letter of complaint to your landlord and say, hey, if you don't fix this, you're going to face consequences. It's against the law. And that's really empowering. And that's something that's so easy to do from someone's home with something they already possess. And so these are the kinds of things that like we're exploring at Just Fix to bring housing justice to more people as an alternative to the legal process, which in many ways, you know, it's, it's hard to change the legal process. It's hard to make it work for the average person. We're never going to have enough lawyers to address all of these problems for people. And it's certainly not going to be the case that there are going to be free lawyers available everywhere. It's going to be a long time coming before that happens. And so, you know, that's what I'm kind of focused on now is to see alternatives to the law as a solution for everyday problems, for human rights problems, for public health problems. And I think the impact is really unlimited in scope. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. And it also, it, I, I think that concept of people don't see problems as legal problems, lawyers see problems as legal problems. It's one of those funny things. Cause I teach first year law students and they come in and the first time they take torts, all they can see is torts everywhere. But two weeks earlier, they didn't call them torts. They said, this guy beat up this other guy. And they never thought like, well, how is that? Like, how can we change that? Why is that wrong? But the second you start seeing it, it changes and giving real people on the ground the tools, especially upstream, as you said, I think is so powerful. You know, I guess the question I always ask when I'm talking to people who are in the sort of broadly speaking legal tech space is how do you grapple with are we taking sort of the role of the lawyer out of the equation? And is that a problem for the legal profession or for our these potential clients? And is this where law's going? Is solving problems from your cell phone instead of by calling a lawyer? It's a really fundamental question for legal practice. But I think the answer is we will always need lawyers, but let's let the lawyers do the lawyer things, like the most critical most interesting things. And I think lawyers are going to be happier too. Maybe there'll be fewer lawyers, but is that necessarily a bad thing? But those who do practice law will be happier. They'll be more fulfilled. They'll have more interesting work. And let's solve all the problems that don't necessarily need to be legal problems before we get to that point. And I think there's enough space or enough problems for all of that to exist together. Like we can work together. Instead, you know, there's this sense of like, no one else can do this but lawyers. And, you know, you can't have the unauthorized practice of the law 
because people are just going to be hurting people. They're going to be causing more harm than good. And I think that we don't need to go to that extreme. There's enough that we can do to share information, to let people understand their rights, and to give them tools to exercise those rights in an efficient way that's empowering to them. And then let the lawyers do everything else. Like, that's fine. I think everyone can be happy in a model like that. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I do a lot of these interviews and sometimes I hear echoes from people who could not be from a more different area of practice. Like I'm thinking back to an episode I did over a year ago with a capital markets lawyer at a big international law firm doing transactional work. And his answer about legal tech wasn't that different from yours, which is tech is not going to eat lawyers. That's should not that's not the right fear. It's just going to make lawyers do a different subset of tasks. And it will let lawyers do different things and let their clients do different things, but they can both coexist. And it's amazing to me. I mean, obviously could not be a more different subject area, but the answer is not that different, it sounds like. That's right. We have to adapt technology. I mean, email was new at one point. Fax machines were new at one point. You know, even phones. And so if we don't adapt, the law is just going to be a dark, sad profession with very unhappy people. And we've already seen that, you know, like lawyers are not a happy bunch taken as a whole. And one of the reasons for that is like a lot of the work that we do is tedious, it's unnecessary, and it can be done more efficiently and more effectively in other ways. And, and let's do the work that we really should be doing, the in, unsolvable legal problems that need to be litigated or negotiated between lawyers Let's do that work. Absolutely. I love that. Um, well, look, you know, we could go on forever, but we're sort of coming to the end of our time. And I always like to end my episodes by asking for a piece of advice or something you wish you knew earlier in your career that you know now that you'd share with either someone going to law school, graduating from law school, or sort of just starting their legal career. What I would say, and this is really hard to tell lawyers, is take risks. We are risk averse by nature. Lawyers go to law school sometimes as a default, like I'm an English major or I didn't want to go to medical school or I'm bad at math. But now that you're here, take a risk. It's going to go by really quickly, you know, your life, your career. And there's no time like the present to shake things up and try something new. And we're in a, in a very unique moment. You know, we're coming out of a once in a hundred year pandemic. There are things that we haven't even conceived of yet in our space, in our field. The way that technology works, the way that courts are going to work virtually, the way that client interactions, depositions, everything is going to be changed or is changing. So my advice would be just take risks. And at least take one risk before the end of your career. Yes, yes, I really like that, and I think it's I think it's hard to hear. And and you're right. I think people are who come to our profession are often risk averse by nature. But I absolutely think even taking small risks can have huge rewards. So thank you, thank you for offering that, and thank you for sort of telling your story. I wish you the best of luck in your sort of new endeavor. And hopefully after listening to this, we have some more housing attorneys sort of coming through the pipeline. Thank you so much, Jonah. This was so much fun. Awesome. All right. Be well. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. 
If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.